Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network in the back where of uh, Roberta's Pizzeria and Bush- Bushwick Brooklyn. Brought to you uh, today again, I assume, by the Modernist Pantry. Is that correct? That is correct. I uh, will be reading there. Our printer's broke, so I'll be reading it, I guess. Oh, yeah? yeah nice. Right. You're going to read it with, with feeling, with gusto? I'll do my best. Yeah? All right. But you do have a caller on oh. line one. All right. So, uh, anyone else who's waiting, call in 2 That's 718-497-2128. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Howdy. Sorry, I'm uh, I'm I'm Tammy. I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. Wow. I'm a bit safe right now. Cool. Hello. Um, I did have a couple of questions. One about meat blue. Mm-hmm. Um, one about infusing truffle flavor, and one about MacGyvering a sous vide. Very good. You're not affiliated with the Today Tonight Show, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Right. No, unfortunately. Yeah, very good. Right. Um, okay. The- you know, they're the ones in Australia. They're the ones in Australia who had the anti meat glue thing. You remember that? Did you see that? Um, sorry. Did you see, in Australia today? Tonight Show was there. They were the the people that had the anti meat glue telecast. Did you see that back when it aired about a year I, ago? Weirdly enough, I saw it on your blog oh. rather than on TV. Strangely, which all right. Kind of shows you how much TV I watch. <laughs> um, but what I was watching though was your um, science and cooking lecture with Harvard. Um, very enjoyable. I now clarify all my liquid using agaga. Nice. Um, but uh, what I did notice that you said when you were talking about your mokume gane um, fish was that there was a small amount of ammonia produced when you were using meat glue. Correct. Um, and I was wondering about, you know, you said on the primer in your blog that um, this dissipates before you eat it. Now, does it dissipate like through cooking? Is it... You know, if you're dealing with raw foods, especially fish, is it really good to, you know, backpack it, take out the backpack and then wait it? Or, like, is there any particular distinction thing going on? Or yes, how does that work? That's an excellent question. So for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, meat glue is an enzyme that we use to bond different proteins together. Uh, when it's doing that bonding... Uh, a small amount of ammonia is produced in the reaction. Uh, and in fact, you can use the reaction as a gauge for how strong your meat glue is by dipping something like raw chicken into the meat glue and smelling it and making sure that you have that aroma that a reaction is taking place. Uh, Mokumegane is a, a Japanese uh, metalworking technique where uh, different layers are laminated together and then sanded flat and have a wood grain kind of appearance. So uh, a number of years ago, I did a recipe with fish, different colored fish. They're layered together. Uh, and then uh, cut on a slicer so you get a wood grain effect with the fish where the very thin layers are glued together. Uh, and that, uh, r- that recipe, I put some salt and sugar so it's cured, but it's not cooked. And so when I originally did that recipe, I did notice uh, the, the aroma kind of of the meat glue because it was a very thick block. I had overused the meat glue. And, uh, and so it was noticeable. And that thing had been in a vac pack all the way up until the time it was sliced. 
So to remedy that, I used much less meat glue. Uh, this, you know, the subsequent times that I, I made that recipe, and I also vacked it to compress it, but then cut it out of the vac pack and let it uh, let it sit. And all of the uh, ammonia dissipate. Ammonia very volatile, right? So it's going to dissipate. Uh, you know, in fact, there's a uh, baking powders that are based on ammonia that are used uh, specifically for cookies, uh, and oh. yeah, and they they bake out over time. But if you put them in something that's super thick right or you don't cook it enough they taste horrible because the ammonia is still there so ammonia is volatile will leave especially in a cooked item it's not a problem uh, ever really but in the in the fish um i noticed you know that it was a problem additionally uh, i've run tests where if you add a boatload of meat glue to something that's cooked in a bag that's never taken out of the bag that some people can detect something even on a, on a long cooked uh, braise but it takes a boatload of uh, of meat glue to do that. Cool. Um, and then, thank you very much. Um, and the second question was, I heard that truffles are really good at dessert, and I really wanted to use the flavor of truffles in chocolate truffles, like a joke. Um, so I was wondering what the best way maybe to infuse, because I know truffles infuse really well into butter, but then to make the ganache, it's just chocolate and cream, right? So right. I'm not quite sure what the best way to go around that. You can use butter in a in a ganache instead. I mean, I've done plenty of butter ganaches. You just have to find a butter-based... Uh, or you, you could infuse directly into the cream if you wanted to use cream, but I do pl- plenty of uh, butter-based work. I mean, it, 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 textures are going to change so much, but I mean, I've, I've done... Plenty of butter, butter and chocolate um, ganaches you can infuse into, or you can infuse directly into the cream. A good way to infuse something like a truffle, where it's expensive and you don't want to lose a lot of aroma, is to infuse it in a vacuum bag, so that you, oh. yeah, right, just put it in a vacuum bag, suck it, and then basically everything stays contained in there, and you're not going to be volatilizing a lot of the uh, aroma of the truffle. I didn't think about that. Yeah. If you have um, access to a vacuum machine, if not, you could. If you if you have access to a vacuum machine, if you don't, you could uh, you know use a Ziploc or something like that. Okay. Um, and my third question was about MacGyvering a sous vide machine. So there were discussions I had one really late, really one night um, with my friends about how expensive sous vide machines are and so on and so forth. Um, and somebody suggested using, uh, modifying a deep fryer with a dial setting um, and a really high-quality tropical fish tank water pump. Right. Uh, uh, would you recommend or, dis- or, you know, not recommended or, you know, how, how well do you think that would work? Um, well, fortunately, yeah. there are tons of people out there that are selling um, kits right now for doing basically what you really need is a temperature control i mean the, the the pump yes you can use an aquarium pump there's any one of a number of pumps you can get in the sub uh twenty dollar range that will um circulate right the problem with a deep fryer a mm-hmm. couple problems with deep fryer <clears throat> they well it depends like i don't know what kind of deep fryers you're, you're looking at but most of the deep fryers that they sell here don't have exposed elements and if they don't have an exposed element you're not going to get very good heat transfer so you're going to get a lot uh, it's going to be hard to get a uh, you know, a nice, steady, um, 
steady temperature. Do you know what I mean? You might get some porpoising mm-hmm. or it's going to take a long time to get up and be accurate. Uh, if you have something with an exposed element, great. It'll work fine. The problem I have with uh, deep fryers or any contained vessel like that is you're really limited in the size of um, – size of, of, you know, what you can cook. So, you know, wh- what you basically need is a, is a, a PID temperature controller. These can now be had for on the order of $30 U.S., right? Um, you're going to need some sort of a, a solid state or regular relay. Again, you, these now can be got for like 7 bucks. A, um, a like a Type K thermocouple for temperature measurement, a waterproof one, that's another 7 so now you're at like uh, 14, 30, 35. Uh, a pump for um, you know another 20. Now you're at 55, and then um, you're going to need uh, the heating element. Now a heating element you could really use anything. There's lots of really cheap immersion heating elements out there. The trick is just not to electrocute yourself. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I did a project once just for giggles where I, you know, whopped up a bunch of stuff that I had gotten on eBay and I bought a bunch of uh, uh, immersion coffee heaters, the really cheap, like, you know, $3 ones you get at, uh, you know, at the local dollar store. And uh, right. it worked. You know, you, you want to try to get at least up to about 1,000 watts of heating, which is what the, you know, standard commercial ones do. But, um, but you know, I stuck my hand into the uh, into the water and because there was a lot of leakage current out of those things because they weren't very well constructed. Do you know what I mean? I mean, no one's expecting you oh, to right. stick. Yeah, right. No one's expecting you to stick your hand into your cup of coffee, and so they don't care so much that there's a little bit of leakage coming out of the heater, right? But you care very deeply whether you get electrocuted when you're putting your hand into uh, a water bath to pull out a, a, a piece of food. So that's that's something to look at. But, you know, there are tons of, I don't know in Australia, but I know here in the U.S. we have a bunch of suppliers. And there's a, uh, you know, I know that there are suppliers in Australia because I've been thwarted by trying to buy something and found out it was an Australian website. So I know that there's people out there that um, that are selling this kind of stuff. So you should be able to get... Everything all told, working for under a hundred dollars. Now, um, the the problem then is like trying to get a nice enclosure, and that's where a lot of the DIY projects that are out there are really kind of cool because they find like you know you know like with DIY stuff there was a there was a rage I guess it's still a rage to put everything into an Altoids tin right like projects that could fit in an Altoids tin. So the miracle, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So the miracle is finding the cool box to put everything into, and I forget what it was. There's some <laughs> acrylic box out there that is readily available that works really well with a bunch of off the shelf parts to make a circulator but i can't remember what that box was um but you know thank god for the internet <laughs> thank you so much by the way hey um yes i shall go and uh, try that and if uh, i get electrocuted um you'll know about it <laughs> all right super thanks for calling in all the way from australia so yeah yeah all right thanks very much oh wait we have another caller three all right caller you're on hey, the air hey dave how you doing how you doing Pretty, pretty, pretty good. I'm actually, now that you got a call from Australia, I'm calling from Moscow, believe it or not. Wow, this is awesome. This is great. Moscow, welcome. And, uh, hey, great. Uh, actually, a native New Yorker living in Moscow, and I have a question for you. Um, I'm redoing my kitchen, and it's uh, basically a, a simple equipment question. What do you get? What can I, what can I, what should I get in terms of, uh, of a gas burner so I can, you know, have some, uh, you know, enough BTUs to cook in a wok, for example, or... You know, and of course, the last question, and I'm sure it's be your favorite, is the espresso. I need an espresso machine, and what should I get? What's the water like in Moscow? Um, it's pretty bad. I use. I'm going to probably be using bottled water. 
Okay. So, I mean, uh, one of the great joys of having a decent water supply is that you can get a plumbed espresso machine, which is I love, instead of having to, like, constantly dump water in the back. I'm assuming you could probably filter or, you know, the, the problem then with also with, with certain filtering techniques like reverse osmosis on espresso machines, you really don't want RO water for your espresso because it's too pure. You know, it doesn't have enough minerality in it. So if you're working from bottled, you can retrofit a commercial machine to use uh, bottled. I don't really know what's available in uh, Russia in terms of uh, equipment. But I mean, what, what level of espresso machine are you looking at? Cost-wise. You know, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to pay for a little bit here, but I, I can definitely not do, don't have the space to do like a whole pump setup. Right. I mean, um, there are lots of, uh, I mean, so the, the prosumer units, hello? hello, you still there? Yeah, the prosumer units that are out there, um, I haven't had a lot of experience with them. I have experience with the smallest commercial uh, units, which are like the single group guys, and they're yeah. fairly compact. I don't know if you have the, the space for them, but uh, I mean, they're good. I only have uh, I only have mines from the you know the eighties or nineties, nineties, I guess, because you know, I don't have the money for a new one. Uh, they're Having had a dual-group espresso machine, the single groups aren't as temperature-stable. I don't have a lot of experience with the newer uh, – like, for instance, one Ken, Ken Ingber, our uh, listener who's t- trying to get me to get the Breville one. I, ha- I don't have experience with that guy yet. I don't know how, how good it is. But, you, you know, the things you're going to be looking for are temperature stability. I mean, you might want to go if you're, if you're into, like, tricking stuff out. I don't know whether it's still considered pulling a good shot, but there are a lot of people who have modified Sylvia's in a very small package, Ranchilio's. I'm sure it's been super seated but uh the espresso geek community uh they've you know done a lot of modifications on on home machines to get them to pull a really good shot it's just a little more fidgety than having a pro machine you know what i mean yeah no i mean i i, I would do one of those single shot pro machines you know like a restaurant uh style. i might go for that but then i would need a pump wouldn't i well a lot of they have a lot smaller pumps the, the company that makes most of the pumps for the machines uh you know here is a company called procon and the reason the pumps are so big is because uh, it's the same size pump. Uh, it can handle literally gallons per minute, even though you only need to put out like 60 milliliters over the course of 25 seconds or less, really, yeah. 30 milliliters, you know what I mean? So um, so th- they, they throw away a lot of their output, and that's one of the ways that they regulate pressure. Procon knows that the pumps are oversized, and so they built a much smaller uh, pump unit. I don't know whether any of those have made it into the newer uh, machines yet because the, the big pumps are literally just way overkill in terms of size. It's unneeded. Right. Um, yeah. The the other style of pump that's used is uh, is a, a vibrating uh, pump. Most of those are made by a company in Europe called Ulka, and uh, those basically it's a little solenoid, track, 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 and you can hear them the vibrating pumps, and they just go back and forth. The problem with those is that it's it's thought that their pressure isn't as even as the larger rotary Procon pumps, and so some people have a gripe about whether or not it's possible to get the same shot quality with those. I don't have a lot of experience with them. I don't know that the argument that people make that they can't pull as good a shot is good or not but those pumps are radically smaller and if, right. if you have a problem with the shot of that what you can do if they don't already do it is put something called an accumulator on the back side of the pump which is basically just a chamber of air you could probably modify a soda bottle or something to do it and uh and it'll just even out any sort of vibration by by having like an uh, an air you know an, an air cushion there right uh, right makes sense yeah um and so you could go you could go that way as far as do you have a chinatown in moscow never been to moscow no no they do not have a chinatown in moscow that's that's one of the things i mean i could probably get you know if i if i can get something installed that would be good i mean i I do go home quite a bit so i can always pop down to chinatown in the city 
Yeah, I mean, because it, it's very simple and very cheap here to get a walk burner. You know what I mean? Like a, a ring, basically just a ring of fire that you hook up to uh, a gas supply. And then all you'd need is a, an adapter to go to whatever the um, common gas plumbing is that you have uh, in Russia. Uh, and you'd, you'd be good to go. But those are, are so cheap. Now, you could, I mean, I've never done it. I've never set up a... Uh, a straight up walk burner, but I see them all the time on the streets here in Chinatown. They're just so cheap compared to trying yeah. to build that thing yourself. Cause you'd have to bend the, you bend the black pipe into a circle, drill all the holes, tap them, put all the nozzles in and then get your gas, uh, you know, your gas supply screwed in. It seems like a big hassle, especially if you're going to be home anytime soon, probably easier to get it that way. And an adapter can't be that hard to, to come by when you're in the States. If you know what kind of piping they have in Russia, I don't, you could get, yeah. you could get something McMaster car here probably sells an adapter a metric pipe to uh to uh you know a standard uh u.s pipe t- uh, taper probably not that hard to to get stateside and then bring it back right. with you. that'd be the way to go i think i mean i mean if i if i was going to go for something slightly more commercial like you know they had the you know the five the five burner you know gas uh, gas tops right now where you can have the walk thing in the middle is there any way to maybe just buy one of those and try to jack up the btus or is it just you know is that just for show um well, I, I haven't. I have to play with one. I mean, the, the thing about a walk is it uses a preposterously high, uh, you know, um, uh, number of BTUs per hour. It just dumps energy right. into the walk, and that that's how it works. So, a lot of the limitations in a particular burner uh, have to do with how much gas is actually being supplied to it. Like, how much gas can you supply to it, and then can you combust it efficiently? So, you right. probably have to. Um, I mean, you, you might be able to mess around with it, like uh, drill the orifice out bigger to get a bigger gas supply, but then you'd need to figure out a way to get enough air to it and make sure that it's combusting uh, efficiently. Otherwise, you're just throwing gas away. You need actual more heat in there. So if you were going you – know, you know what I'm saying? So you um, – I mean, anything's possible to do. I mean, I'd have, you, you use regular natural gas there in Russia, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty basic. Yeah. I mean, um, you, you know, you can always up the up – the, burner side. I mean, the good news is I guess you don't need it to throttle down very low because you don't care about low heat outputs with a walk. So you can just have it, the thing scream. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you increase the, um, the, I mean, if you increase the orifice, we I mean, just got to make sure that you have enough ability to, to combust it. If you put too much gas through the, sm- uh, through, uh, smaller burners, you know, you'll just see the flame jumping out, but you'll see, you'll have a big unburned area before it goes out and you're just basically pumping gas into the air. Do you know what I mean? Right, no, that won't be good for the kids. No, no but what you can do is, uh, if if you can see, if you can look up the size of a regular walk burner, you can get one of these things so it's all nice and finished. Rip out the old burner and throw a new one in. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that has the real kind of you know the fortitude that y- you need. And this kind of stuff I've done all the time, or I've added a couple of extra twenty thousand BTU. Like I added a couple extra twenty thousand BTU burners in my salamander underneath, so that I could have over and under fired uh, salamander one time for a project I was working on. So you can always add more burners with extra knobs on it, and those things will combust great. You know what I'm saying? So like if you have a space that you could drill in and add more heat, as long as you can get it kind of in a basic ring shape, you'd probably be good to go. Yeah, that seems that seems the way to go because then it won't you know won't be sitting out on the side or something like that taking up space. Bingo. So, one of the, yeah. so, so what, what, in, in terms of other equipment, if you were had, you had your go-to equipment and you were gonna you know get something new, I'm happy to go esoteric, but you know what would you do? Uh, I mean. 
I mean, you need a, a vacuum machine, circulator. I'd love to have uh, if you if you have a like a, like infinite amount of gas supply. I mean, I've always wanted to have a tandoor in my house. It'd be awesome. You know what I mean? No, no, I got that at the country house. I was th- I was I was going to put it in the ground there. Yeah, that's, yeah. Out of, out of the old dacha. That's a, that's a great thing for out there putting it in the ground. Yeah, I mean uh, things. Uh, I mean, uh, I have a Paco Jet variant. I mean, I wish I had a real Paco Jet. Uh, you know, a vacuum machine obviously is awesome. Circulator. You need the a re- circulator is probably the thing to go for if I was going to go. Yeah, really good blender. Like a yeah. Vita Prep. You know, next time you're in the states, bring one back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and here, uh, here's a good question. Um, you know, in terms of buying, because buying equipment is because things are just outrageously expensive here. If I was to buy things, you know, in the city, is there places to go that you know that that does you know that does two twenty? I need 220. 220. You can buy direct from VitaPrep and have them drop shipped on 220. Uh, I right. don't, you know, and also PolyScience will direct drop ship you to the States a 220 unit, and then you could bring it in as a carry uh, back, you know, uh, oh, yeah. without, without having to, to worry about it. But I don't know of anyone that does direct, direct to the customer sell of 220. I mean, you could deal with the JB Prince or something like that, and they could probably special order it from you, but PolyScience would, uh, on a circulator would probably do that, and VitaPrep. I mean, the thing that's killing you is the taxes and the importing. You know what I mean? It's not the item itself. VitaPrep knows how to make a 220 VitaPrep. You know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. I spoke to them about it. And, um, you know, same with PolyScience. I mean, th- their stuff, is, you know, it's pretty simple uh, for them. It doesn't cost them more to make a 220 yeah. unit. No, they, they they sell them over here, but I mean in the states, let's say they're five hundred, and here they're a thousand, well yeah. over a thousand. Yeah, so. but by its by its state side, it shouldn't be that much of a price penalty here. Maybe only like ten percent instead of two hundred or a hundred percent. Hey, Dave, we got a few more callers on the line. Oh, all right, that's cool. All right, Dave, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Can't wait to try the bar. All right, thanks so much. Bye. 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 Hey, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, Dave, uh, I have finally acquired a circulator after putting that off for half or forever, and I'm getting ready to drop a leg of lamb in it, or at least... Uh, Hello? Oops. Hello? Hi. phone is doing very weird things. That's all right. I still got you. Okay. Um, so, first and simplest question. If I'm doing a cashmere-type leg of lamb in the circulator... Can I put yogurt on it before it goes in the bag, or is the, does that go wrong in some impressive way? All right, so you can um, – I have done kind of buttermilk. I haven't done yogurt in the bag. I've done buttermilk. I mean, you're going to get some um, – I mean, it's already curdled, so, you know, how's it going to curdle some more, right? I mean, it might break. The sauce might break. Uh, but, you know, the, the main thing that you're going to want to – so when you're adding yogurt to something, and I have much more experience not with uh, lamb but with chicken, like if you're going to do like a, a chicken tikka, for instance, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the yogurt is – the acidity is basically there to uh, tenderize. And so you're looking at kind of a, a tenderizing effect that they have. And I, I some people love the texture of um, – and let's go back to buttermilk because I have the most experience with it – buttermilk. Uh, poaching in a bag. The problem with it is, especially on a very, very long cooking time, is that uh, the meat can tend to uh, mushiness, especially because you're not going to overcook it when you're using a water bath. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah. So you're going to want to guard against uh, mushiness in the meat on long cook times with, with, uh, with acids in the bag. That said, 
you can have really, really spectacular, very soft uh, meat results that some people really, really like. It's just it's a question of whether for you personally it tends to, to get to the mushy side. All right. And, and do, uh, do you have any guidelines on, like, at, at what point it's likely to really start going soft? I mean, um, it's 24 hours, 48 hours? Yeah. twenty four. Look, on a leg of lamb... Uh, okay, so I mean, the, the the inherent problem with a leg of lamb is that the the leg has so many different muscles that all want to be treated differently. This is why leg of lamb is very difficult um, piece of meat to have it all come together um, at the same time. If you cook uh, a leg of lamb for uh, twenty four hours, there will be some muscles in the leg of lamb that are delicious, the ones that have more collagen in them, right, and then uh, and more connective tissue in general. Uh, and then there are other muscles, ones that in the leg of lamb that are good with a very quick grill, let's say, those ones are going to taste uh, fibery if they're cooked for twenty four hours. That said, sauce can make up uh, for a lot. You know what I mean, and so it, it's it's a question of of what you're gonna try and and shoot for. I mean, look, look. In the end, your result is probably gonna be better than uh, what most people can attain anyway. But what you should start doing when you get a circulator and you start playing with it, like you're doing, is really focusing on kind of the um, minutia of what the textural differences are when you cook a piece of uh, meat that long. If you have the time, which you know I don't know whether anyone does. I mean, not now, but ever later, get like a the same piece of meat put it in five bags and then cook it for cook you know cook each one drop one in you know put one in then you know eight hours later put another in and so you can get a feeling for what a couple of hours here or there can do when you're cooking a piece of meat over over a long period of time and it's really worth the experiment to do it do you know what i mean i do yeah no, I that coming. um and okay on a related question um very closely related some portion of the chicken that I get in the Costco multi-packs right. turns out to be absolute rubber. A, partic- I mean, a particular piece of the chicken? Yes. I mean, like, you know, um, I don't know if you're a big Costco shopper or not, but you know, they, they sell six, still, um, six vacuum pouches of, of raw chicken breast, and out of a... Each vacuum pouch has two breasts, so you're buying twelve breasts in one, you know, in in one package. Right. And like, on some random basis, some number of those are like seven times tougher than others. That's bizarre. And 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 uh, presumably they're all being cooked in a similar fashion. You, you've repeated this enough such that it's not just uh, like you know one got cooked uh, improperly or something like that. You, you, I, I, I've had this problem at least five or ten times. It's very odd. Are, and, is it substantially different size? The one that's tougher? Uh, they may be bigger. I mean, it's it's one of those, um, it's it, it's tricky to tell because I usually split them widthwise. So. Um, like when I'm grilling them hot, that I can get the inside and the outside done at the same time. Huh. Let me ask you this. Does it taste better? Well, the texture is so funky, you almost don't get to the taste, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Cause, uh, when you bite it and it's just wrong. Really, yeah, because you know, older birds are radically, radically tougher, but I doubt they would sift some older birds in with the regular younger, because it doesn't make economic sense for them to do so. But older birds typically will taste much more like chicken. 
You know, like I went, um, you know, if you go abroad to a place that slaughters their chickens much older, they're all much tougher. And so they can be hard for us to eat because we're used to a tender chicken. And yet the flavor of chicken in them is, is greater. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why a lot of old French recipes work lousy with American chickens. Right, exactly. And, and you know, why our soups are so bland. You know what I mean? Compared to like, because you yeah. get a real stewing hen, you know, and you get a lot of flavor out of one of those things. But, you know, they're kind of tough as nails to chew on. Uh, but I wonder whether it could be an age thing. I mean, it's possible that it's, uh, I mean, Costco, I'm sure Costco is like, you know, getting regular factory farm uh, chickens and that they're not going to be, there's not a yeah, lot of variance, you know. Yeah, this is the basic, I mean, it's foster farm chicken. Right, right. And, you know, there's probably not a lot of variance in, in age or or, and I wonder whether it could be like a pH thing, like a slaughter pH thing. I haven't done enough uh, research on tenderness in chicken versus uh, slaughter stress, for instance, um, to to know uh, kind of what happens. I mean, there's a lot of research, obviously, on slaughter stress and uh, excessively soft, drippy meat for pork, right? But mm-hmm. um, but I don't really know of anything on chicken. That's interesting. I'm gonna hopefully maybe someone's listening that has had this experience and has done some research. I would be very curious if anybody has an opinion because I mean it's, it's it's you know if you you think you need six breasts for however many people you're feeding and then four of them come out just two of them come out really funky it really just sort of scrambles your plan. Weird. Yeah. Hopefully someone will uh, call or write in with with uh, an explanation because I'm curious. We don't have a Costco here in New York, so I don't I can't go test it myself. That's that's actually terrible because other than this little problem, they're they're really nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then uh, one more question back to the lamb. Um, I got a little package of TPA of a TPA from um, of meat glue from uh, your friends at uh, uh, your sponsors. Uh, the you that I haven't even opened yet. Right. When I do this leg of lamb, can I TPA it back into its um, shape? After I sear it, so could I see, open it up, sear it, and then ball it up with TPA? Sear it, sear the inside with meat glue? Yeah. Uh, with transglutaminase? Uh, yeah. Sear the inside. It's interesting. You you can. You're not going to get as strong of a bond, right? And the meat isn't going to, unless you put like a lot of force on it with plastic wrap or a vacuum machine, it's going to be hard to get it to conform properly. Does that make sense? But it does. It can be done. Uh, you know, cooked meat will glue, just not as strongly. All right. So I can I can I can roll it back up and actually get it to at least sort of stay. Yeah, and remember to uh, uh, tightly seal the meat glue and put it back in the freezer to store it after it's open. Okay, and I did not know the story. That didn't freeze it, so yeah. that's very helpful. Yeah. All right. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. Caller. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Bye. All right, caller, you are on the air. Hey, Dave. It's Mike from Denver, Colorado. Hey, how right. doing all right? How you doing? Good. Well, uh, my question is, is is kind of twofold. We make a lot of haphazard pickles at home, kind of like throw cabbage in, sprinkle salt, cabbage salt. Right. And... Uh, you know, I'm curious if there's a, a bulletproof, because some of these we, we stick in the back of the fridge and, you know, you figure them out a month later, you taste them, they're, they're a little funky, you know, but, you know, who knows whether it's actually safe, you know, <laughs> is there a, I've heard of a 5% salt solution, it's generally safe, uh, you know, and beyond that, you know, if you do a kimchi or something like that, will it actually keep indefinitely, uh-huh. you keep it for a year in there? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, indefinitely is a long time. I mean, the, the, these things tend to um, reach a peak and then can be kept for a long time afterwards without them becoming unsafe. The question is, do they taste as good to you? Do you know what I mean? So, so basically, you know, what you're trying to do is get the salt level, and I don't have it at the at the tip of my tongue because I always just kind of go and look it up when the when the time comes. Is it's you know fairly easy to calculate roughly the um, the salt level uh, that you need based on, for instance, the weight of cabbage that you have, right? And then uh, pack the stuff together as long as it stays submerged, right, so that you're not exposed to a, a lot of air, uh, and the salt level is high enough, and then when the lacto, uh, lactic acid bacteria start growing in there, you're going to have enough. It's the combination of the acidity and the salt that prevents nasty crap from growing in there uh, over time. And it'll stay basically, yeah, you could keep it a year. Uh, you know, The question is, is it going to taste as good after that uh, year is up? Now, I like to, rather than having to submerge things, I'll do a lot of vac pack, not to do a quick pickle, but a vac pack to do something like a kimchi. Uh, and then you can see the bags inflate with carbon dioxide. It's great. And then, you know, you don't have to worry about air getting to them ever because they're in a sealed bag. But that's not necessarily uh, viable for home, which is why they people tell you to weight the stuff down uh, or, you know, put a plastic bag with water on top in it to weight, weight, weight the guy down. Um, but, uh, you know, another thing you can do to if, if you're having problems with funkiness, I mean, a lot of the issues, it sounds like you're using a wi- you know, wild, uh, you know, whatever happens to be around your kitchen is what you're inoculating the um, – the product with so if you were well, I, well, I like a i like a funky pickle oh, that's yeah. kind of why i'm curious about it you know funky pickle i like that but if you know but if you want something like that's consistent then you can just save some of your pickling liquid from your old batch right and then after you mix in the salt and stuff slop in i mean so like i have a brand of sauerkraut that i like right and so a lot of times i'll cheat because i know i like that brand of sauerkraut and when i'm working on something i'll save that sauerkraut juice and i'll dump that in along with the salt to my my cabbage to kickstart the uh, you know the particular uh, cultures that those guys use because I happen to like it. So if you get a result that you happen to like, then you can backslop it into your next batch, and you're guaranteed to get that same kind of a, a, a funkiness, assuming that you don't get a contamination. It's a robust enough starter culture, so you can get it going. But in other words, that same thing that, that they do with with the sourdough, you could do with a pickle in terms of starter culture like that. Oh, okay, and are you putting in? Uh via the raw weight of the cabbage, not the water? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, a lot of the old recipes, you don't even add water to them. You know, they just kind of will will liquid out over the course of the first, you know, day or so, and then, uh, and then you can press them. Or, yeah, I mean, you, you want that when you're calculating salt levels uh, for to prevent microbial spoilage, right, um, you're, you're calculating on the final weight of total product and then what percentage salt is that right not the percentage of the brine uh because you know imagine if you had even the most concentrated brine that you could possibly do in the 30s percent right and then you were to put that you know teaspoon of that into a ton of cabbage you haven't added any salt right so so it's always best to calculate uh salt on weight of total product water plus cabbage and that way you know exactly where 
you are and you're never going to go over and you're never going to go under you know i like i mean i like salty stuff so the stuff that i do is probably always pretty safe and you can get a feeling if it becomes acidic also remember the acidity is helping you and you're going to have to have a lower salt requirement if your acidity level is high enough you know it's a it's a it's a multiple thing if there's no acidity you need a much higher salt concentration do you know what i'm saying right yeah is there a, is there a good reference for that uh, oof. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. I don't, like again. I don't have it off the off the tip of my tongue. But I, you know, I, like any one of the agricultural extensions in the in the universities, they put out uh, a lot of good pickling advice, and, and they'll usually give you both a salt level concentration and a pH uh, concentration uh, that you that you can deal with. Uh, I don't have like a, a website I can send it to right away, but you know, the, it's it's out there. And usually, the ag extension guys are very conservative, so you don't have to worry about it. They're not pushing the envelope of what's safe because otherwise they'd be in big big trouble and so their information is usually reliable cool i'll look into it all right thanks so much all right thanks a lot all right so should we take a uh, break or do we have another caller uh no but that's we're almost at the end here and i have to read this because uh, uh, read, read this read this all right today's show has been brought to you by the modernist pantry supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook do you love to experiment with new ke- cooking techniques and ingredients but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application modernist pantry has the solution they offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook and enthusiast and most only cost around five bucks saving you time money and storage space whether you're looking for hydrocolloids pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries unflavored popping candy, a.k.a. Pop Rocks. Pop Rocks! Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free package of these exploding delights to play with. Simply use the promo code CI74. When placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Pop rocks. Hey, so uh, can, can I can I have a couple minutes, Jack? Or are we uh, we rushing out of here? We got like five minutes, maybe. All right, cool. So I met one of the guys who was on the initial development team of Pop Rocks at one of the classes I taught, and uh, you know, Mikey didn't explode. That didn't happen. But uh, the way Pop Rocks are made is that. Uh, uh, CO2 is put under very high pressure in the molten sugar. The sugar sets. Uh, then they release the pressure. It explodes into little pop rocks thing. And inside of those uh, frozen uh, those uh, sugar granules are residual high pressure CO2. And that's what gives pop rocks its uh, its thingamajig. And although Mikey didn't explode, he did say that they put a whole load of pop rocks into a truck that developed a leak in transport, and it did kind of blow the side out of the truck. Don't know if it's true, but that's what he said. All right. So let me rip through the email question so that no one can say that I didn't pay attention to my email. Uh, people. Um, Elliot Papineau, who we uh, spoke about uh, his knife work, uh, knife sharpening the other day, ordered a walking horse strop, followed our recommendations and bought a strop. See whether it's nice. His strop, Nastasha, made out of horse butt. Wow. Horse butt. Horse butt. Uh, also got a, uh, a shout out from... Um, Dan Main in the UK, who works for uh, Dovebid, which is a, a company that uh, I've always seen but I've never ordered. It makes me more nervous to order off of like a real auction site than it does to order off of eBay. But he sent us some links to uh, a tablet press, which I desperately want a tablet press. If anyone wants to lend us a tablet press, uh, you can do it. But uh, check out Dovebid for all of your, uh, for all of your biopharma needs, uh, which, again, we have them, which I don't really understand why we all have so many, but we do. Uh, also, Tom Fisher in Lansdowne, PA, said uh, he really uh, loves what we're doing, and he realized last week when answering our questions that he loves 
that we're doing and that the amount of knowledge we squeeze into a 45 minute show is incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and he basically says, um, he's going in the way back machine to last year when Nastasha was against her best judgment trying to make a pie crust with Crisco. And I said that lard is the only fat to use in such situations. Can lard be used in place of vegetable shortening in any recipe calling for vegetable shortening? Or are there certain dishes where vegetable shortening is needed? And is it a one to one substitution by weight? The difference in, uh, vegetable shortening and lard is that, um, Lard is typically a lot softer than vegetable shortening, so it's more difficult to work, and you're going to be in certain situations where you need the hardness of a Crisco, uh, otherwise your product becomes completely unworkable. That's why I tend to work very cold when I work with lard. Also, if you're using natural lard uh, that's rendered out, it has like a liquid and a solid portion. It's much harder to use, but tastes much better than uh, hydrogenated lard. Hydrogenated lard, the one you buy, Armor in the store, Armor brand hydrogenated lard, is uh, still more plastic than Crisco, more softer rather than Crisco, but uh, much harder than real honest-to-God lard. But yes, uh, one-to-one substitution uh, is best, and lard in biscuits is fantastic. Uh, lard in uh, – I've never tried lard in, in – uh in a cookie instead of butter because I use butter in a cookie. But anyway, yes, you can use lard. And referring back to my question last week about extracting fruit juice with a centrifuge, I noticed most brew supply companies sell peptic enzyme, pectic enzymes. Wikipedia seems to be saying that it's uh, used for the same person as pectin, uh, same purposes as Pectinex Ultra SPL, breaking down pectin when making fruit juices. Can this be used in place of or to complement Ultra SPL or am I barking up the wrong tree? Well, they're similar enzymes, but all the different um, pectinase enzymes that you can buy have different kinds of activities. Um, and so even Novozymes, the people who make Pectinex Ultra SPL, uh, have a, a range of different ones that have different kind of properties and different kind of activities. We use Ultra SPL because that's kind of like the most kind of shotgun one they have. It doesn't just take out uh, pectin. It takes out hemicellulose and a bunch of other stuff. So any of these enzyme concoctions are kind of multiple uh, enzyme brews that have various effects uh, – and I use that one because it's, it works over a wide range of pH on a wide range of substrates. Uh, you might be able to find one in a homebrew that it works really well. I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, you're not barking up the wrong tree. It's just you know we have a lot of experience with Pectinex Ultra SPL, and so I tend to go to that one. And it's not that expensive for us to use because we buy it in bulk. Make sense? Makes sense? All right. Uh, last in from Alvin, uh, Alvin uh, J. Uh, Schultz in Houston, uh, who apparently was on uh, Top Chef uh, something. Top, I saw him. I looked him up. I was on Top Chef something. Anyway, uh, thanks for all the info you shared with me via cooking issues. Also, congrats on Booker and Dax. I sent a bartender friend of mine in there this week, and he was blown away. I hope to stop by during the uh, International Chef Conference this year myself. Please do. I have some questions about shopping for my first Rotovap. Because of my limited funding, I'm stuck with hunting through eBay ads. Anything I should be aware of in eBay auctions for Rotovaps? How do I properly clean one that may have been used in a lab? Do Rotovaps generate leak over time via worn seals, etc.? And what is the cost to restore one that may have such problems? I know Dave likes the cold finger style condenser. Does he just run those with a dry ice alcohol mix? Uh, I also have uh, liquid nitrogen in my home kitchen. 30 liter. Nice, huh? Liquid nitrogen in home kitchen? Nice. Uh, would it be better to use that for condensing? How long will a cold finger fill with li- uh, nitrogen before it uh, lasts before it boils off? And lastly, I see many auctions like this and substitute in some uh, you know, kind of off-brand rotary evaporator. For Rotovap, uh, under 1000 bucks on eBay, what's the catch with this seemingly Asian-manufactured rotary evaporator? Thanks for your help. Uh, also, I've ordered from your sponsors at ModernistPantry.com, and they're great. Extremely fast shipping and nice usable packaging. Just wish they'd give a bigger discount for buying by the pound. All right. Well, I'd stay away from that crappy uh, 
you know, uh, Rotov app that's really cheap uh, because I've used even name brand Rotov apps that aren't the good ones in the past, and they're leaky and they stink. And if you have a leaky Rotov app, it's going to be very hard to get a good flavor in it. And yes, they do tend to leak over time in their seals. New rotary seals it cost about fifty bucks to buy. You just want to get everything clean and make sure that the thing doesn't leak. If the glassware is etched so that it can't form a good seal, like it's scraped too much and etched, you're going to have a problem. But most of those problems with leaks can be fixed. But a leaky Rotovap is the first reason why you're going to lose flavor in a Rotovap. I do favor a cold finger condenser, but liquid nitrogen get eat, gets eaten at a ferocious rate. In a So every liter that you distill is going to take probably seven, eight liters of liquid nitrogen in a cold finger condenser. So you're going to be tearing through that 30 liter doer. That said, that's a really good way to do it. Dry ice is going to last you a lot longer. I don't use dry ice because it's hard for me to get dry ice in New York City. I have to take a cab and go to a place and then pick it up and then come back, blah, 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 because I don't own a car, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're in Houston, you own a car uh, and you have access, I would use dry ice in a cold finger because it's going to last a lot longer. Uh, and I would, you can get one on eBay. That's how I got my first one. And... Um, you can fix most leaks. You want to make sure that nothing nasty went through it. You're going to want to clean it with a with like you know Alkanox or some really hardcore glass detergent. Bleach the hell out of it, even though it's probably more of a, a just a poison in it than a bio biohazard. It's probably going to be more poison issue. But just clean the ever loving hell out of that son of a gun because I don't want you to be sucking in a bunch of carbon tetrachloride or crazy poison stuff. Poison cooking issues. Fish Listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up to date news and information. Thanks for listening. Fishes, fishes, vodka.